Welcome. It's a pleasure today to moderate a discussion between two leading thinkers of the so-called fascism debate, uh, who I'll introduce now. And, uh, you know, both, both of these thinkers have contributed significantly to uh, this question of whether the United States is experiencing a wave of fascism, uh, since, specifically since the election of Donald Trump uh, in 2016. Or has it always had a fascist element going all the way back to the 1930s. We're going to get into all this. But before we do, let me just introduce uh, them. The first is Jason Stanley, um, who's a professor of philosophy at Yale University. He's, of course, the author of a very well-known book on this topic, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. I also want to draw attention to a new book that he has coming out, a co-authored book with David Beaver, which I believe is due out in the fall at Princeton University Press, titled The Politics of Language, The Politics of Language, uh, which in part offers a powerful new vision of the language of politics, ideology, and protest. Um, the second uh, participant here needs no introduction, as this is his podcast, but just briefly, uh, Daniel Bessner is currently Associate Professor in International Studies at the University of Washington. He's, of course, the author of a great book, Democracy in Exile, Hans Fire, and the Rise of Defense Intellectual. And for our purposes, uh, he has written a number of pieces on the fascism debate, an excellent co-authored piece with Ben Burgess that appeared in Jackman Magazine not so long ago. Um, he actually also has a piece on the uses of the Weimar analogy um, that I found very helpful, and a co-edited volume, I think, in the works on Cold War liberalism. At any rate, he recently wrote a piece <clears throat> in the New Republic, an appreciative review of the intellectual historian Bruce Kuklick's book, Fascism Comes to America, A Century of Obsession in Politics and Culture, which uh, was, as mentioned, very sympathetic to Kuklick's argument that fascist dis fascism discourse in the United States often involves a kind of floating signifier, rhetorical kind of usage of the term fascism to discount one's political enemies, and therefore it's all over the political spectrum. And we want to center the discussion primarily around this piece and wider questions involving this debate over uh, fascism in the United States. So the way that we'll proceed is Danny's going to talk about some of the main points of this piece, and then we'll let Jason have a chance to respond and we'll just go from there and see how this all works out. So, Danny, why don't you start? Thanks, Danny. And I just want to say I want to thank Jason and yourself for coming on the podcast. And I think this is going to be more of a discussion than a formal debate, but we'll see how it goes. Um, so before we get into it, I just wanted to summarize um, my piece and, and sort of set the stakes of debate as I see them. And Jason, feel free to disagree with me. Um, in however way you want. So first of all, I really think there's two fascism debates that happen at, at one and the same time and in parallel. Uh, one of them concerns analysis and one of them concerns politics. So in brief, there's the analytical question of whether or not the contemporary United States has uh, today, uh, does today or has in the past reflected in meaningful ways the experience and movements of interwar so-called classical European fascism. Whether you could use the term fascism to describe what's going on in the United States based on one's analysis of the political situation today or in the past. So that's the analytical debate. Then there is the political debate, and that is whether using the term fascism is useful politically. And there are, are various meanings of what that uh, of what the term political um, designates. Uh, there could be just the pure politics. Does using the term fascism uh, gin up support against a particular political movement? Uh, does using the term fascism actually lead people to vote for your uh, particular political candidate? Or does using the term fascism help people appreciate things about their own society that they might not Otherwise, So I just wanted to highlight that there's the analytical debate and the political debate. And oftentimes, um, people talk past each other because they're really one side is talking about the analytical part, the other side is talking about the politics part, 
et cetera. And the debates also intertwine. So I just want to briefly uh, summarize Kuklik's book because I think it's it's important, or at least partially summarize and then add up uh, uh, add my section to it. So Kuklik essentially argues that Danny says that that the use of the word fascism has gone through various stages. In the 1920s, after Mussolini named his political party the National Fascist Party, there was a moment when some American thinkers were entranced, as I put it in the New Republic piece, with the romance of Italian fascism. They thought there were sort of rhymes between American style progressive and fascism, etc. Over the course of the 1930s, though, the term fascism takes on a specifically negative valence. Uh, And that's partially because it becomes increasingly associated not only with Mussolini's Italy, but with Adolf Hitler's Germany, Um, particularly beginning in the mid-1930s, when uh, Hitler passes the Nuremberg Laws, and then Mussolini invades Ethiopia, and then Hitler seizes the Sudetenland, and then eventually starts World War II. And so partially due to that, over the course of the 1930s, the term fascism starts being disconnected specifically from Italian fascism and becomes associated on one hand with Hitler's Germany and on the other hand with just a bad thing. And as I write about in the piece, a, a, a particularly popular target of, uh, that people called fascists was FDR and his New Deal. Um, that from various, from various perspectives, someone like John Dewey and someone like Huey Long would accuse FDR and his New Deal of being fascist, whereas supporters of the New Deal would support Huey Long um, would argue that Huey Long was fascist. And so fascism in the 30s is really a floating signifier. Uh, during World War II, fascism becomes more firmly associated with the Axis powers in particular, and so it has a stable meaning. Uh, and then really from roughly World War II into the late 1960s, fascism was refers to the extreme right. Uh, and I also want to emphasize this point because it's crucial to my argument. It's also in the 1940s that American liberal elites begin adopting the European political spectrum. Before the 1940s, that's not really something that American liberal elites did. They thought that their particular political movements stood apart from the left-right spectrum of Europe. Um, interestingly, America had like a left that it didn't like. It had sort of socialists and communists that it didn't like, but it didn't really have an identified right because so many features of what we identify with the right, like white supremacy, overt racism, were considered normal features of uh, partisan politics, particularly because they were associated with the Democratic Party. Um, and so as this sort of liberal governance take off, takes off in World War II and after, uh, liberals, to define themselves as the vital center, start employing the European's political spectrum and said running from communism on the left to fascism on the right, which is a bit of a departure from Europe because in Europe, oftentimes, monarchism was also also on the right and associated with fascism. America never had a strong monarchist tradition, so it's really fascist. Roughly, again, from the 40s to the 60s, fascism is associated with the far right. And then in the middle to the late 1960s, it begins to adopt more of a floating signifier, uh, characteristics of a floating signifier, in particular as um, radical uh, anti-war baby boomers and members of the black radical tradition start employing the term fascism for various reasons that I'm sure we will get into. And it's from, uh, yes, exactly, exactly. And we'll talk about the black radical tradition in a second. Um, And so roughly, I would say from the 1960s uh, until uh, the 2000s, Fascism becomes again a floating signifier, and because the the the, the radical side um, on the left, both the anti-war side and the black radical side, were just one element of American society that began deploying the term fascist. And it begins to be used across the political spectrum with people on the right identifying someone like Barack Obama as fascist or people on the left identifying someone like Reagan as fascist. Jonah Goldberg uses it for liberal fascism. People identify Christian fascism, et cetera, et cetera. And then after 2016, I think we'll return to sort of the World War II type moment where fascism begins to be explicitly associated again with the far right, the World War II to the 1960s moment. Uh, and, and the reason that I, I say that happens in my piece, and this is not quick, this is my argument, the reason I say that happens is because liberalism is in crisis and because there's no longer a communist enemy and liberalism helped shore itself up in the Cold War by identifying a communist enemy. After the end of the Cold War, they sort of tried to, they, they, they went around for a bunch of different missions. They tried the war on terror. It didn't really work. They're trying China now. It's not really working. But working, but because liberalism is in crisis, they have to re-identify the enemy that was present at the moment of the creation, and that's fascism. Then I ask, is this analytically accurate, and is it politically useful? I'll just briefly say, no, I don't think it's analytically accurate. I don't think uh, elements of American society reflect um, what gave rise to classical European fascism, which was a powerful left, the experience of total war, and a state capable of being taken over. 
And I don't think it's politically useful. I don't think actually the deployment of fascism for the past 50 years by the left has actually made Americans more aware of the horrible racialized um, violence that defines their state. And then finally, I just want to briefly wrap up with the black radical tradition, because that was an element of my paper that I wasn't able to get into, of the New Republic paper that I wasn't able to get into, but I wanted it to add. And I see the black radical tradition as having several different strands. One, the strand associated most famously with Amy Caesar of Martinique, but also with uh, George Padmore, which is the notion that um, fascism was really found in the colonies first, and settler colonialism, and then it boomeranged back to the metropolitan. Um, so that's a very strong um, element of this tradition. And, and I would agree that that's absolutely true, that the, the sort of concentration camp and the violence of colonialism went from the colony to the metropole. I think that's absolutely correct. Then there's another um, element of the black radical tradition associated with someone like Langston Hughes, and I think also um, someone like Toni Morrison, which is the notion that um, black Americans, African Americans, Americans of African descent, um, understand at a, at a deep level that elements of liberal democratic capitalism mirror those of fascism, that the racialized violence of the American state meaningfully mirrors the racialized violence of the fascist state. And that's also something I agree with. But when someone like Langston Hughes or Toni Morrison uses it, I think they're using it primarily in a political sense in order to help people appreciate sort of the horrors of liberal democratic capitalism. Um, and I think that also characterizes the work of someone like Angela Davis and someone like George Jackson, um, but who, who partially use the term fascism in order to help Americans appreciate that elements of the prison industrial complex really do resemble those of Nazi Germany. I think that's absolutely correct. And I think that um, the, the argument that liberal democratic capitalism engenders these sorts of horrible social formations and social processes is absolutely correct. And they use it um, also as an analytical term. But again, the way I read Davis, the way I read Jackson and Hughes uh, and Morrison in particular, and I should also add uh, Amari Baraka, who coined the term racial fascism is that they're really using it for the political purpose of helping people appreciate how liberal democratic capitalism uncomfortably mirrors elements of fascism. I don't think they're necessarily arguing the identification of the United States with fascist or Nazi Germany. I don't think that's what they're really doing. And finally, I just want to conclude on this piece. There are also people in the black radical tradition, and I would say someone like Stuart Hall, who does not agree that the term fascist is a useful signifier. Um, so writing in, in Marxism Today, I believe, in 1979, Hall goes into a long disquisition of how he believes that fascism actually distracts from the real problems that define liberal capitalist democratic society. And I would say, in terms of the black radical tradition, I find myself aligning primarily with Stuart Hall as opposed to other thinkers. So I think those are the stakes of debate. And Jason, I'll give you a chance to respond. Okay, great. That was very, very useful, Daniel. And I think that there's some conceptual differences in how we set up the debate. And as you move into the black radical tradition, which is my the tradition I come out from, I don't actually, and it's a tradition that I don't actually think of as separate from the European tradition. Uh, Stuart Hall, of course, is responding to a tradition he's in, which is widely using the term fascism. Absolutely. And Davis is a student of Marcuse. I, I yeah. totally agree they're intertwined. Exactly. So, uh, so um, a little, uh, you know, a little personal background, because that's how I roll often. Um, like, this is my father's dissertation. It's called Heritage of Change, British Education and the Making of, a, of, of an African Intelligentsia. And, uh, and he spent 1959 to 1962 in Kenya, looking at the school, it was right after the Mau Mau emergency, when the British had had, you know, massive concentration camps for Kikuyu, torturing them in horrific ways. And my father was a Holocaust survivor. He was seven when he left Berlin. I uh, lived through Kristallnacht. Had, and he had a family story uh, that he always told at the dinner table um, of taking, in the Kenyan bush, taking a copy of... Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism to Kill a Flying Cockroach. But if you think about what this meant, this becomes very clear in his, his, I'm preparing this for publication, in his field notes. He's seeing all the analogies Arendt draws in part two of Origins of Totalitarianism with what he's witnessing in Kenya. Uh, he has goes on about the colonial administrators, the savagery of the colonial administrators, how he talks in one passage about he's staying at some guy's house and his brother 
had been arrested for burying suspected Mau Mau guerrillas alive. And it's very clear, my father is very clearly seeing the connections between British colonialism and what he experienced as a child in Berlin. And it's very clear his work on the education system, the British education system. He marks at one point, what other, you know, the best students in Kenya graduate from a school where they don't learn anything about the history of their own country, but they can list all the British monarchs. <laughs> and so, so this overlap, this kind of relationship between Kikuyu and Jews, uh, th- this, the, the, the relationship between immigration uh, between uh, between colonization, the brutality of colonization, concentration camps, and that being brought back to the metropole. That's not theory for me. It's lived experience of my family, and it's how my fa- my father theorized his life. Uh, and he and Arendt and and he was not as much. He he saw that image, and that Du Bois sees that very clearly, and from the world. Uh, uh, the world in Africa, where where 1946, he's like Hitler's angry at the loss of the Africa Germany's African colonies. So these these parallels, and then I would say the American side that influences Hitler, Madison Grant, uh, the passing of the great race. Um, uh, I mean, I'll get to that in a minute. So I don't see these for me. They're mixed together. There's a common structure. And I would not call it liberal democratic capitalism because I think one thing that's distinctive about the black radical traditions you're talking about, and certainly, you know, uh, 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 Dave Davis, definitely, uh, certainly the Soledad brothers, certainly Jacks, George Jackson, is that it wasn't liberal democratic capitalism. Race was involved. They were not class reductionists. Um, they were they were g- gender and race are in, intricately involved in the analysis. And to me, that's why I'm based. I wouldn't set up the analytic problem in terms of classic European fascism. I'd set up the analytic problem in terms of the Ku Klux Second Klan, in terms of Jim Crow. And uh, we know the Jim Crow laws uh, were the model for the Nuremberg laws. Um, so, uh, so, so for me, and for me, uh, what we have to do is we have to look at what, str- I, I'm not moved by the floating signifier thing because I'm a philosopher. My friend is, all our terms are, all our concepts are floating signifiers. <laughs> Truth, <laughs> you know. Uh, so that that is like the life I am doomed to live. Uh, my friend Herman Capellan is coming out with an Oxford University Press uh, book that is arguing exactly what Kuklik argues for fascism, for democracy, saying democracy means North Korea calls itself a democracy. Everybody's calling themselves Hitler. In Mein Kampf, Hitler says the true German democracy is a dictatorship. <laughs> and so you can play the same game with democracy. So the floating signifier thing is neither here nor there. The question to me is, uh, so what I'm out for in my analysis is a political philosophy, is a characterization of, of, um, of an ideology, of a culture, of a way of speaking, a way of treating uh, other people. Um, that, that, so pop, you know, contrasting with populism. So populism makes a distinction between people and elites. Fascism has a tripartite structure. This doesn't fully define it. People, the people versus the elites and the anti people. Like there is an anti people, LGBT, maybe, uh, African American, Jews, uh, I'm doing a philosophical project. I'm arguing, and with Susanna Siegel, we, we have a piece coming out, Fascism as a Social Kind. It's a characterization of an ideology. And when you're characterizing an ideology, you're not characterizing regime type. You're not characterizing... Uh, a part of it is mass politics. So part of the floating signifier thing is like Marcus Garvey, in a famous interview in 1937, self-describes as a fascist. But as Adam Getachow makes clear in her forthcoming work in the Garveyite movement, um, what he means is mass, he's just talking about the mass politics of fascism, Mussolini's mass politics. Um, so you can talk about people, you will use fascism for different elements, a regime type, a uh, relationship between business and, and government, um, uh, a mass politics. Uh, Tony Morrison talks about fascist solutions to national problems. <laughs> um, but uh, so, uh, so, um, I'm trying in my work to characterize uh, the ideology, which is I take it a way of talking, involves a a bunch of different elements, harshly patriarchal, takes LGBT, committed to rigid gender 
uh, hierarchies, a uh, certain version of the mythic past, uh, embeds itself legally into the system and creating a dual caste of citizens. So, uh, so, uh, so the, the, the real citizens and then people who are, have a lower citizenship status are none at all. Um, so it's trying to describe this, this, an ideology, there are ways of talking like setting yourself up against communism. So I don't think fascism, I don't think it's right to call the antebellum South fascist because you don't have communists yet. You don't have, I mean, it's the ideology that Arendt is really trying to describe in Origins of Totalitarianism, um, where, you know, it's, it's, uh, and, and it's, 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 uh, you know, it, it, it has a relationship to imperialism and colonialism. Um, it has a kind of militaristic, it has a kind of moves in the education system. Uh, and that's the, the structure, like, like Sam Moyne accuses me of on the way I'm thinking about fascism as, well, if you're right, then it's like everywhere. I'm like, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> that it, it like democracy, like liberalism, like, you know, socialism. Um, these are ideological structures that have formed and coalesced. And that's why you see multiple traditions from Hannah Arendt to Césaire describing it. Excellent. Um let me pick up on a few things here and just to segue to, you know, maybe a, a big topic that's come up on a, a number of times. I saw Danny react, Jason, to something that you specifically said, namely that Jim Crow provided a model for the Nuremberg Laws. And there have been a lot of books. I'm thinking of like Sarah Churchwell's work. I'm thinking of the fact that we know that, you know, Hitler very much was. Yep, there it is very much interested in a kind of Monroe doctrine, Carl Schmidt, the so-called Nazi jurist of the third Reich seemed to have found that idea himself intriguing. And so I guess my question to you, to, maybe to Danny is what do you do about uh, what seemed regarding this, this particular influence? Uh, how do you, how do you respond to some of Jason's comments that, that indicate direct connections between Sure. Uh, yep. No, no, it's an important point, and it's one you often hear on both uh, amongst the center left and left. Uh, I would argue that these direct connections do exist. Hitler did at points reference the United States. Um, I think far more powerfully than uh, a particular sort of building, I think he wanted Germany to be able to come together to challenge Anglo-American imperialism as a world power. Um, I actually think that most people who cite the Whitman book don't actually read it because Whitman is not claiming that there is a direct sort of Hitler got the Nuremberg laws from Jim Crow. It's a comparative law book that is basically putting the context of 1930s Germany in this sort of global mm -hmm. space. That's I would say, he has, I would say his transcript. Okay. So I would say as a historian, what one of my major tasks is to construct causal hierarchies. And so when I'm trying to explain the Holocaust or when I'm trying to explain the Nuremberg laws, what's more important 2000 years of European anti, that's, that's not even, let's not go into the uh, like hundreds of years of European anti-Semitism steeped in church doctrine, the social experience of Jews in the Germanic lands the, the sort of rapid industrialization and urbanization of the 19th and 20th centuries, the various displacements caused by World War One, the Treaty of Versailles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, or the United States. I actually see a lot of this work, which, which the actual scholarship doesn't make as strong claims as people deploy it in public discourse, but I actually see the United States as not being a major, major causal factor in the advent of Nazism or Nazi law. I actually see this as a form of what I term negative American exceptionalism, where Americans are again placing themselves at the center of history, in, the, in this case, the history of the Holocaust, and making their country the exceptional nation, but in this case, the exceptionally evil nation. This is not to deny the links that scholars have drawn, but it is rather to raise the question of where you place those links in the larger causal hierarchy of the Holocaust and Nazism and fascism more broadly. Just a few 
quick points I'd like to make in terms of liberal democratic capitalism, in my understanding of the term that that implies race and gender hierarchies, that those are inherent to liberalism, as, as Danny knows, as I write in the forthcoming piece on the history of Cold War liberalism, just wanted to make that clear. And then I have just a couple of questions um, for Jason. So why set up the analytic problem by using the Ku Klux Klan in terms of importing a term that was used in a very peculiar, particular historical moment in the 1920s, does that not risk othering a profoundly American tradition of racist violence? As I put in the New Republic piece, it's not like genocidal militarism and xenophobia and a violent obsession with incarcerating minorities were European inventions. That's like 17 words. <laughs> yes, in many, in many words. And then, uh, and then I would ask, what is unique to fascism as an ideology? And this is the point that Stuart Hall makes in his 1979 piece. Fascism emerges out of particular political moments, and I agree. It is profoundly linked to the organizational form of mass politics. I would argue, as I've written elsewhere, Mass politics does not define the politics of 2023 America or the 2023 United States. We do not live in a mass political moment. We live in a moment where the state has actually insulated itself, as I have argued and as Quinn Slobodian has argued when it comes to economic policy and as I have argued when it comes to foreign policy and the fact that, for example, Congress hasn't declared war since 1942, and I have no say over what the Fed does, nor does any democratic institution. Why import a term that specifically defines a mass political moment for a moment that is so obviously not defined by mass politics. Um, so first of all, I'm not, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I take the, the, um, uh, let's, let's see. Uh, so, um, let's go backwards. Uh, first, why, why use the term fascism? Because for me, fascism is an ideology. It is a larger structure. It is not some moment that has occurred. It is rather that Nazi Germany in particular, and Mussolini later in the mid-30s in the Ethiopian uh, colonialism, uh, taps into uh, taps into that ideology, just as the Ku Klux Klan does uh, in, in the 1920s. So as a philosopher looking at political ideologies, looking at political cultures, uh, I'm not interested. Uh, I don't. I don't think that you know structures. You're theorizing on a certain level of generalization. Uh, I think there's a certain level of generalization that applies across many cultures, including India today and Modi. Uh, and there, you don't. It's not hard to make causal connections because because RSS simply tells you they're modeling themselves on <laughs> on the Nazis. Uh, so uh, so. Um, so, so when I'm looking at an, so when I'm looking at something like an ideology, an ideology can occur embedded in different, you know, it, you know, the e- economics is going to be part of an ideology. So, but it can, you can still have core elements of the ideology realizing in different ways, uh, and the overlaps between the ideology of the ni- second clan, uh, the, the overlaps between the mass politics of the first clan. And the ideology of the second class and, and Nazism are just too obvious. We all agree on those overlaps. Uh, so, you know, to, so uh, th- it just happens that the Europeans coined a goddamn term for it and we didn't, you know, like uh, so. And another term has not emerged because when you start to factor out the elements like white supremacy, uh, patriarchy, uh, Christianity, when you factor them out, you don't see their internal connection that enables them to work together to create a grouping of, of people who, who are, who like include anti-Semites, racists, uh, social conservatives, big business. And that's what I want to explain politically why such a grouping comes about. If you look at Bradley Hart's Hitler's American Friends, uh, an excellent book, each, you know, one chapter is big business, you know, another chapter is social conservative. So to see that structure, to understand that structure, we need a concept, you know, and the concept is there for us. It's just not, it's not a concept. It's a philosophical concept. It's an ideology. It's something that, that like liberalism, like democracy or socialism. Um, so, uh, so I mean, it's different than those, obviously, and it's a, in, uh, you know, it's not a voting, um, well, I mean, you know, I guess, no, I'm going with the, we have the same issues with democracy. Like, is it a way of voting? 
Uh, is it a set of institutions? Is it a culture? So Elizabeth Anderson says, you know, the problem with the literature and political philosophy is there's these three different, you know, some people are talking about a way of voting. Other people are talking a way, a way of appointing people to office. Some people are talking about institutions. Other people talking about a culture. When I talk, we can talk about fascist institutions, the concentration camp. Um, you know, uh, we can talk, uh, we can talk about fascist regimes, uh, like how people get to office, uh, you know, by autocratic methods. Um, but I'm talking about a culture, and I think that there are un- there's undeniably a generality at this level. Nancy McLean's great book on the second clan, Behind the Mask of Chivalry, brings this out extremely well. Um, so uh, so uh, as far as the American influence, um, I don't agree with your reading of Whitman. I think he has transcripts showing that that the lawyers – the not not Hitler himself, obviously, but the Nazi lawyers were studying the Jim Crow laws. Now, I do agree with you, and this is something that where Cesare and Dubois. I just want to say they they I agree they they were studying. It's a question of constructing causal import. Sorry. Right. So uh, so uh, so the uh, the um, as opposed to, now in the United States, in Mein Kampf, of course, Hitler repeatedly praises the United States uh, as a national state, but obviously doesn't know much about the United States. Um, I think Du Bois is right. Cesare is right that African colonialism is what we need to look at. Um, it's African colonialism that is really at the heart of European fascism and fascist uh, desires and wishes. And I think, that, yeah. And so when you when you look at the United States and you look at what would that ideology look like here, it's going to look different. Our imperialism looks very different. Um are, 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 um, I think we do have, sim- although I don't theorize of this not being a historian, being a philosopher, I'm much more interested in the ideology than I am the causes. Uh, but uh, we have, you know, we've lost a bunch of wars. <laughs> you know, we lost the Iraq war. We lost the Vietnam war. The Iraq war veterans are back. You know, we have, we have this, uh, we have, you know, we have returning veterans from war. Uh, the literature uh, the folks like Cynthia Miller Idris and um, Jeff Charlotte, they look at in detail at the groupings at the mass political events. I'm not talking about the state being fascist now. I'm talking about what we're seeing in the United States in terms of mass political events. I think I think we are seeing a mass politics. It's a mass politics, same as in Brazil, that's organized around churches. Uh, that is organized, that is, that it has a religious element like Romanian fascism. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and that's what I worry we're seeing. And that's the base to which, uh, people are pandering. And we see great replacement theory, uh, central fascist tropes, great replacement theories at the heart of this book. Um, you know, those are central, those structure fascist ideology, on my conception, I'm just not seeing a word that links all the parts together like fascism does. Danny, could I respond very briefly to this point in particular? Sure, absolutely. So I, I think um, I would say the differences between the mass experience of returning soldiers from World War One and the experience of soldiers returning from Iraq just in terms of scale it is so different. It is incomparable. I think that you, I have a piece actually about this that came out today in Boston Review. Like we have an all volunteer force and have had since the early 1970s. And that's one of the ways that the American state has protected itself from more well, radical it's, energies. It's, that's, that's a, again, over, over, you know, that's like, uh, I mean, on a, any they're, they're level, not like comparisons. On any, le- on, on any level, on any generalization, like when you look, when I'm looking at the United States, what I'm looking at is not just returning refugee, return, the returning veterans. I'm also looking at the militarization of the police, the except the military equipment that's been given given to the police. The role I'm looking at internal colonization. Uh, so, so here. Here we have a kind of internal colonization of our black population. That is the focus of the black radical tradition in the U.S. that you talk about. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that's what George Jackson's talking about, that colonization. Uh, black Americans are, are internally colonized by a... So it, there's, that doesn't exist 
that same structure doesn't exist in interwar Europe. Um, so just one, just let me, I, let me just very quickly, 2 million Germans died in World War I. 4,000 Americans died in Iraq. These are not like comparisons. In my I'm, not, opinion. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I would look but at- But history has to matter, right? Like- okay. I, I don't, I mean, it's, you cannot make any single generalization about any category if you do it like this. You're just destroying the possibility of philosophy because there's no- I came uh, here to to bury philosophy. Not to I mean, I mean you can't. It's it's definitely true. They also didn't speak German here. Uh, but uh, but, the, the, but they're have, different. If you're if you're talking about structure, I think those comparisons do have to be made with, with some attention to what actually happened. But I think this leads to a question I could just ask. Directly. Well, of course, some attention to what actually happened. You lose a war. There are lots of military veterans. The military veterans are involved in political causes. They appear. And now does that now, of course, we don't face Nazism. <laughs> that has to be explained, too. <laughs> of, of, of course. But then um, the way that I'm hearing you and correct me if I'm wrong, you're essentially using fascism in an extremely general way. And I'm also hearing primarily because it has like this type of political resonance as something very bad. And that's fine. That That, that is totally fine. But that doesn't seem to be Really, no, an analytically. That's what I don't think I'm. Can you finish quickly? <laughs> uh, just an analytically based reason to use the term. Like in your book, how fascism works. Uh, in your in your book, how fascism works, you define it, and you're very consciously in a very in an extremely general way. I never. Yeah, I, I think you you no, say. I'm I'm saying a property of the thing. I'm going to give a ten part definition of its rhetoric. Sure. I'm, so um, let me just quote you and tell me, and you could expand upon it. Quote. I have chosen the label fascism for ultra-nationalism of some variety, ethnic, religious, cultural, with the nation represented in the person of an authoritarian leader who speaks on its behalf. That describes... That's not century. a necessary condition. I'm saying fascism is this, is this is a property of fascism. It's an ideology that fits into this. And in the next 10 chapters, <laughs> I'm going to elucidate it. <laughs> So I have no short definition of fascism. I pulled out a short definition of fascism for TV once that I standardly use, which is very different than that. But no, I'm saying here is the thing I'm going to elucidate. It's an instance. It's this kind of ideology. And there are 10 parts to it, <laughs> which I'm going to spend a whole book. But like, why fascism and not authoritarianism? What's, what's the choice behind that use? Authoritarianism, a monarchy is authoritarian, uh, a uh, a uh why not use authoritarianism? Is that your question? Oh, because, you know... Or populist authoritarian. Stuart Hall recommends populist authoritarianism. Authoritarian yeah. populism. Why so, not use that? So I, I, I would say, so Susanna Siegel in my paper is all about why, why fascism and not this and not that. So, so uh, authoritarianism, uh, let's start with authoritarianism and let's move to populist authoritarianism. Authoritarianism can be rationalistic. There's there's forward directed authoritarianism, like communist authoritarianism will be we're going to create a utopian future to which we're all going to suffer. Uh, that's the so and, and we're going to do it rationally. Mao's great leap forward. We can discuss whether they really were fascist and Han nationalists at their center. We'll discuss that later. Um, but there's uh, communist authoritarianism. The rhetoric, the temporal directionality is entirely different. It looks to the future and says, we're going to have this plan to do a more perfect society, that, to build a more perfect society. Uh, so, uh, so fascist authoritarianism is, is based on spirit, will, you know, we're going to, we're going to. Uh, but historians don't necessarily agree with that position. Like, there's actually been quite a bit of work on reactionary modernism and the rationalist bases of fascism in the Holocaust. I mean, this is the yeah, Jeff. Her that's Jeff Herf's book, but also like the Dialectic of Enlightenment. So, I mean, that is not the accepted understanding of fascism as, as the, vital the, spirit. The dialectic of Enlightenment. No, I, um, guess what? There's no accepted philosophical understanding of liberalism. There's no accepted philosophical understanding of any philosophical concept. What, but that's what, why you historicize it to see how it's been used in history, which is a point uh, we could get to later. Sorry. The the uh, the I think you're going to face some of the same uh, conceptual uh, concept. So the the role of rationality. So we can get into this as you can imagine. Uh, the, pra fascism rationality has a practical role. So you have 
Uh, so dialectic of enlightenment is about this. So, I mean, everything I say is, is everything I'm saying is consistent with Horkheimer and Adorno. And uh, the, the, they're criticizing instrumental reason, like elevated to a ridiculous plane. Uh, fascism says technology, also reactionary modernism. You get the technology in as a way of furthering the will of the, the, will of the leader. Um, so th- that's completely correct. Um, there's nothing I'm saying that, but that is not, that is not, there's a kind of mass utilitarianism at the base of like the, the great leap forward. Like we're all going to be better off like this. Fascism doesn't pretend that all of humanity is going to be better off like this. So, so, so it's just the racialized gathering of fascism, which you could find in other political traditions as well. It, it, it doesn't no, seem it's not racism is not sufficient for fascism, uh, and and you can have fascism that's like like um, Russian nationalism uh, or or uh, I mean linguistic. I mean now we go have to there, we really have to go back to the history of nationalism. To, and to the philosophy of nationalism to locate fascism. Fascism is a certain perversion of nationalism, um, racial nationalism, linguistic nationalism uh, that accentuates the greatness and uses it as a, and as a as an excuse to violently colonize the anti-people. Um, and that's a structure that, that and, and it can use and, and its goal is struggle. And so social Darwinism is at its core. Uh, these are, you know, social Darwinism is not at the core of communist authoritarianism. Social Darwinism is not at the core of di- dynasties. There's plenty of versions. Populist authoritarianism can just be dynastic. It can just be populist. So these are just conceptual points. Populist authoritarianism doesn't mean to be based on uh, on nat- on national uh, on the certain kind of ultra nationalism at all. It can be based around just a guy who's just a macho strongman. These are my disputes with someone like Ruth Ben-Ghia. But so just the way the way that I'm hearing you, though, is that it's so interesting Ruth because you're is, is, is Ruth. Just to clarify that last point, Ruth Ben-Ghia, I think, is in strongman analyzing populist authoritarianism. Got it. Uh, but it's interesting because you, you, you say that you start with the Ku Klux Klan, but I'm basically seeing you build the category out of the experience of Nazi Germany. Uh, the experience of Nazi Germany is a. Uh, yeah, that's the most successful. That's that's that's. I, I'd also say I'd take issue with some of your history earlier because when you talk about the 30s in Germany versus the Holocaust, the Holocaust is a certain decision made in 1941, and the 30s in Germany is very different. And the 30s in Germany is uh, about Vonze. Are you talking about Vonze? Because there's like debate now over Vonze when the when the oh, oh, actual about- decision was made. But I just want to highlight, there's like a lot of... 1938, 1939, 19, you know, it wasn't, uh, it, it, it was the 1930s, Jews were living in Berlin, my family was living in Berlin, they were just second class citizens. And that's, and it was still fascism. So when you're talking about fascism, so this is a point we make often, and my side may, often makes in the fascism debate, Germany in 1935 was fascist and there was no Holocaust. <laughs> so that's a really important point. So when I make analogies between Jim Crow and Nazi Germany, I'm talking about the 1930s. <laughs> so, uh, so certain things happened during war. There were decisions made. Himmler didn't think you could shoot, Germans could shoot so many Jews. Um, so the Holocaust happened after, when we can talk about that. But um, now but we're getting into the micro history, which I, there's a, I, it's not as clear as all of yeah, this. Right. Like there's no Hitler Bevel, you know, right. like. The- so I think I think you can see what my project is, which is coming up with a specific kind of totalitarian ideology that is generalizable enough. Just want to say I would to totally reject us- the category of totalitarianism. I think it has absolutely been demolished repeatedly. But authoritarianism, if, if you'd rather go with that authoritarianism. Illiberal, you know, there's a very broad category where you have monarchy, you have popular, you have like strongman dictators, you have uh, you have a kind of Singapore kind of authoritarianism. Um, You you have Chile, Pinochet, um, which I would say is more towards fascist. And I would and I'm trying to define a sort of patriarchal, uh, uh, racist 
uh, or something serving race, something that gives you an anti-people, focusing on LGBT, bringing in social conservatives, bringing in bigness, big business, targeting media elites, uh, using violent, uh, some complicated relationship between something like the KKK and the official police. I just have one quick question, then, Danny, big back to Danny. If you're referring to the first Ku Klux Klan, I think it would be a stretch to say that there was American big business in the way that it, it no, comes to I mean in the twenty in the twentieth century. So again, I just want to highlight you're building from the Nazi case. No, no, second Klan. I was very clear the whole time. I'm only the ideology. It's the mass politics of the first Klan and the ideology of the second Klan, and that's very clear. If you get to chapter ten in my book. All of this Ooh, is Jason. Layout. Come on, I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a saint. Well, but, but, <laughs> I, but I point out that the attack on labor unions is the focus on labor okay. unions. So it's a 20th not, century phenomenon. Always Re- reconstruction is not fascist. Reconstruction is not fascism, but it involves important elements that later fact. But it's not fascist. A lot, many people do claim on that side that it is fascist. So you're well, unique in that. Well, black Du, du Bois's analysis in Black Reconstruction makes it seem very nascently fascist. Recall Du Bois's analysis is a big business in the North and the planter class in the South sees that poor whites and poor blacks are getting together in a labor movement. They recognize that's dangerous. So then they reinforce racial hierarchy to get poor whites behind rich whites. And sorry. (laughs) But uh, Amari Baraka, who builds on that more, is... he explicitly states, and I, I believe I'm correct, that the post-reconstruction era is defined by racial fascism. So you disagree with that? Um, I don't, because for me, anti-communism is kind of central to fascist ideology. It's a speech practice, the way of calling everybody. So that's the Nazi case again. So you're building uh, off the Nazi case. No, the KKK did, the Second Clan did that too. All the time. <laughs> Second, second clan is their overlap between the twenties is the twenties in many countries. I agree, and that's the point that women is actually making, which is this comparative international flow point. Not mm. positing, as I read him, that sort of it starts in Germany. Sorry, starts in the U.S. and migrates to Germany. Whitman's much more like the 20s and the 30s of the 20s and the 30s everywhere. And you get this in sort of the book on the Global New Deal as well. And that's a point I agree with. It's not the point that people say he's arguing. Sorry, Danny, you should go. You haven't talked in a while. Oh, no. I mean, join the conversation. Let me let me make an observation. I assume that you two probably share a lot in common politically. I assume that, you know, you both probably vote for the same people. You both... Uh, Given the limited slight slate, I think that's <laughs> so. When I hear, you know, whether it's a, phil- a political distinction or an analytical distinction when it comes to this debate over fascism, what is really ultimately at stake? I know it's a question that's come up before because, again, you probably agree. I saw Danny shake, I mean, you, Jason, shaking your head in agreement with a number of things that Danny was saying about the black radical tradition. Seems like you have a lot so of. Danny, I think that's the exact right point. And let me just spell out why I actually think it's important. And this is why I think you have to be a historian. Just always, Jason. Just You should learn. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I think if you look at empirically what function has fascism served most efficaciously, it's not Angela Davis trying to illuminate uncomfortable similarities between liberal, democratic, racialized, gender, gender-inflected capitalism. I think the way it's actually been most important in actually existing American history has been used to shore up a form of liberal democratic capitalism of the precise um, formation that Davis criticized, which is that it's actually been used to say we have to we have to not do radical transformation in our society because if we go too far, it's going to be fascism. And this is actually what someone like Eric Rauchway argues the New Deal was. He argues that over the course of the 30s, and Danny Simons Jenkins uh, showed me this, so thank you, sir. Over the course of the 1930s, the New Deal effectively evolved to be an anti-fascist project in the sense that it was meant to close off more radical reimaginings at home. And when you look at the creation of the national security state in the late 1940s, it's justified in explicit anti-fascist terms. So I think what actually happens if you're like looking beyond philosophy into the history, where has this term found its most important purchase 
It's not in the American left, which has been effectively destroyed for a century. It's in the actually existing cadre of ruling liberal elites. So that's what I think the stakes of the debate actually are. And that's what I, that's why I think fascism talk has exploded since Trump, because liberalism is in crisis. There's no communist boogeyman. So you gotta, you gotta take out the hits, you know, and the the original hit is anti-fascism. That's what I think is going on here. But could I, could I just, ask you what differs in your argument. Suppose I gave the argument like this. Democracy is constantly being used uh, to uh, disparage uh, threats. So people are always saying, oh, it's anti-democratic. It's anti-democratic. And then so we've got to line up behind this and we can't be too radical. This shows that it isn't uh, this anti-democratic talk you know, it, it isn't accurate. It isn't useful. We shouldn't be talking about democracy. And also it's incoherent. And, you know, that's a, that's a historical question. I mean, that, that, that's, 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 that's my answer. All political terms are misused. Sure. <laughs> I, political I, terms I, exist I, in the world, right? Political terms like, exist in the world. Carl Schmidt? <laughs> Carl I, Schmidt. I don't, I don't quite understand, but um, I mean, that's a historian's point. The historian's point is that political terms have effects in the world. No, no, I know who Carl Schmitt is. I know. No, no, I'm just reading you something that Carl Schmitt said, which sounds like you're saying that you don't know what a political term means unless you know who it's directed against and its historical context. And otherwise, it's empty and vacuous of content. <laughs> no, it's not. I would say different terms are, are more or less vacuous. Um, but I mean, this is a Marxist point, I would say, pre Schmittian that you have to see how things operate in the world. I would trace it to my good buddy, Carl, as opposed to my not good buddy, Carl. Um, but I, I mean, I think that's a classic historicist point. That many but I, I don't think it's a classic historicist point. I do not think that historians are like, I mean, I sta- I'm using it in a tradition, in a certain radical tradition. And I'm not going to not use it in that tradition because some liberal elites misused it. I stand in that tradition and I stand in that tradition proudly. And the same is true of any socialist who says, who says, oh, no, we shouldn't. We shouldn't. use." I mean, it would be absurd to use this reasoning, reasoning to drop the term socialism, that it's been misused terribly. It has certainly been misused terribly, but I'm, people are still going to be socialists. I'm still That's going- actually I, this actually leads me to a question. How do you see yourself as standing in that tradition? I, I don't quite see the direct connection between what Davis or Padmore or Hughes or Tony Morrison or Baraka have said, or Jackson, for that matter. Where do you see yourself as existing in that tradition? I see myself as existing. So my 2015 How Pro- book, How Propaganda Works, is about mass incarceration. And mass incarceration is central to my analysis and how fascism works of a fascist practice that we see the the rhetoric surrounding mass incarceration, particularly in the 1990s, uh, a lot of my work is about making analogies between that rhetoric and Nazism. <laughs> my mother worked in the court system. All my writings in, in all my writings in the pop in many of my writings in the popular press, I talk about how my mother always said, "You know, my mother was eight when she came from Poland. She always said, um, <laughs> she always said." what they're experiencing is what we experienced. And she also always said, uh, you know, uh, we're lucky. It's not us here. Um, sure. So, but then you would say the sources of the, of that mass incarceration are best understood in interwar Europe, as opposed to the United States. No, no, I think we're, I feel like, I feel like this is an argument with my wife where we go in cycles <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, the, uh, and we just need to go to couples therapy, Daniel. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, so uh, I, I know you're going to say no, of course, but then why use fascist? And again, no, because you're going to say it's a general term to, to locate things that preceded when the term fascism was actually used. And I would say that's extremely general and ahistorical. So I think that's probably the source of the disagreement is that I care about history, Jason. I care uh, the source of these terms. The, the, uh, the, the, okay, there's two different claims, caring about history, and we can geek out about history all you want. Multiple times you tried to like trap me into saying I was in, saying doing something inconsistent with Jeffrey Herf for um, the, the, uh, the I know my history, and I still defend my claim 
that the ideology of the second clan overlaps in substantial ways with the ideology of the Nazi party. I agree with that. I know you agree with that. (laughs) So since I'm talking about ideologies and fascism as a name for an ideology, what other name for the ideology would you have if it's, you know, so why import the European turn as a practical matter? Then, then if you're saying that there are these identifications and similarities, why import the term, which specifically emerges from inner Europe? So so because I went through this in my, so I wrote my 2018 book in 2016 and I looked for a term and there was no damn term out there that would have done exactly the work. And my work ongoing breaks that apart in greater and greater detail. What, why, you know, fascism is a name for, like, Orban is on that spectrum. Uh, Putin is on that spectrum. And uh, Xi, you know, complicated, but probably, but largely not. You know, we can talk about Han nationalism or whatever. Um, so we need a word for uh, these common set of tactics that people are borrowing for, for each other. If somebody's going to offer me another word that will say, you know, uh, uh, that that will do, you know, that will not amalgamate these different parts: patriarchy, the attack on LGBT, the 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 racial, or you know, it could be linguistic. Here we get into the nationalism literature, the overlap and tactics and in anti-immigration stuff and in sec- creating second-class citizens. If someone can come up with another word, I'd be fine with that. So then, just as a historical matter, then not even history. So you're you're using tactics as the criterion of your use of fascism, and I just don't see how you could possibly say the politics of the 2020s United States mirror the politics of the 1920s in here or in Europe. Could you explain that leap that you make? So, so okay, we can talk about the mass politics. So I'm generally talking about the ideology, uh, and that will feed into. So there's a certain element of the mass politics that, for instance, Garvey is talking about which would be the uh, the David Livingstone Smith has investigated this in detail in the current context and done some of this detail work. Um, the uh, the stadiums, the stadium rallies, the the mass political events. That's uh, pretty loose. Uh, that, that, those have existed in basically every type of society for over a century. And they were inve- developed by socialists in the 19th century. I'm just I'm just registering that's pretty loose. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not talking about uh I wouldn't dis- uh the militias uh are central of course to the mass politics that's what Garvey was talking about. Um, yeah, I'm not stopping at mass stadium rallies and each single one is going to overlap with because uh, uh, mass politics is just one part of uh of of the politics. Um and I don't think you're right that fascism is just a name for the mass politics because then you have Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey says Mussolini stole it all from me. I think the the ideology, the ideological component has to be the the dominant group is doing the ultra nationalism. So uh, so Zionism in its original form is not going to be a form of fascism, though it can be transmuted into that, as Albert Einstein and Hannah Arendt warned. Um, so you know. So it is historical. What? There, it is historical then. In certain of course. cases. No, I don't know what you're talking I'm about. I'm very unclear to... about the question, the theory, the relationship between theory and history. Because sometimes it seems like history does matter. And then yeah, other times it seems so, like history so, doesn't. So Rawls has this notion of reflective equilibrium, where you work with your theory and you check it with facts. And then you go back to the theory and you check it with facts and you go back. So that's what we do when we're doing concepts. Concepts are hard like that. They got to be responsive to the world, but they're generalizations that apply in different places. You don't have to speak German or Italian to be a fascist. <laughs> the, the, you know, it's a general thing. We all agree there is strong ideological overlap or even the same over, same, same structure between the second clan and the Nazis. We all agree that there are modifications of that that would apply to our, RSS and India. Um, we all agree with that. We need a category for it. Um, I don't see why fascism isn't, you know, the most useful category. So how do you respond to my political point about its valence? Sorry, Danny, you go. Well, I don't know how much longer we're, we're about at an hour here. Um, 
I have some family responsibilities. Right, um, we both have family. But um, um, I have a, just just maybe some closing questions. I'm reminded of what happened after um, 9-11 with the rise of the so-called new atheist, almost none of whom were religion scholars, basically saying that we can free ourselves from the terror we're experiencing if we get rid of religion. Um, and then the religion scholars said, you guys know nothing about religion. And I'm reminded of that because it seems here that the historians often respond to many who are arguing for the pro-fascism position that you don't know much about history. And then the, those who are arguing more from a philosophical or ideological perspective say, well, you're too empiricist or you're too, you, you, you know, you're too antiquarian. Don't compare me with the new atheists. I know <laughs> much more about, come on, I teach. No, 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 I'm, yeah, I'm getting to my question. I'm getting to my question, which is, you know, Richard Evans, the historian of, um, you know, National Socialism's Third Reich, wrote a piece in the New Statesman not too long ago, basically saying that historians know what the answer is, that Trump isn't a fascist, right? So in other words, the question is, is how much is this, is this really boil down to disciplinary differences? And the second question is just wrapping, wrapping up kind of questions. Where is this debate going? Uh, the 2022 midterm election, there was a lot of fear about that. Um, you had pundits basically saying it could be the beginning of the end um, in terms of if things don't work out in a certain way. Of course, some of those fears are mitigated because the Democrats did better than expected. Of course, we have a conservative, very conservative Supreme Court right now, and there's still fears about uh, Trump uh, somehow overcoming all this litigation and 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 becoming president or maybe DeSantis. Um, is the worst behind us? Um, is fascism just always a perennial threat if you have a particular view? I mean, it seems as though in the 90s, this wasn't, this wasn't, you know, there were people, um, you know, Jason, and I've talked about Charles Mills, I had the opportunity to interview him just, you know, rather by chance before he passed away. And he was making arguments quite long ago about, you know, United States being white supremacists at a time where I think most of his colleagues probably would have found that shocking. Um, so, you know, where is the, how do, you know, how do you view the future? Is it doom and gloom? Is it, are we in the new Cold War? Um, and what does that mean for this fascism debate? Um, so just your thoughts about this as we, as we kind of wrap things up. Yeah. So why don't I, I wrap things up and then Jason could get the final word because he's the guest. My prediction is that this debate is going to wither, particularly because I think it's primarily a response to Trump. Um, and I think the liberal elite who buy books about fascism in America are going to go move on to the other case. Um, I don't think this is true of Jason's work or the work of serious scholars, but there's a lot of this sort of like it's fascism work reminds me of the war on terror, you know, immediate responses to Bush, sort of quickie democracy's in danger, democracy's dying, and soon we'll move on to the next crisis. So uh, I don't think that's true of, of scholarly interventions. I think those are more serious and they're more connected to actual traditions, as Jason has uh, has elucidated correctly. But my prediction is that in three years, we're not going to see the Atlantic publishing as it fascism pieces. I think there's going to be a, a move to something else because I think Trump is getting older. I think he doesn't have the same old juice. And even if he does win the next presidential election, I think the valence is going to be different than 2016. It's not going to be the shock. I think that the fascism debate is primarily a response as a liberal response to the shock of Trump. And I think it's going to end. And if you want to hear what I think about the new cold war, subscribe to American prestige. Jason, please have the last word. So, um, so I've been working, my writing and my activism is not focused on this debate. Uh, my next book, my, would be my, my, ne the book that's coming out is an act 500 page academic book. Um, that's tough, <laughs> but that is really in linguistics, but bears on rhetoric. But the book I'm writing now, uh, tentatively titled schooling for fascism is about the education wars. It's about trying to look at Turkey, uh, India, Russia, and what's happening in the United States, kind of a Masha Gessen kind of thing, where, but you're looking at the education systems and the bills, like the relationship between the bills, the connections between the different groups who are advising each other uh, across these countries. Um, so, and, and there are difficult theoretical things that bear on our discussion, uh, intimately about teasing apart nationalist education from uh, from fascist education, like what is it, when is it an okay nationalist education and when does it 
start to have the hallmarks of like what we're seeing in Hungary, where the Jews get re- removed when Horty gets moved up, when, uh, you know, what, ha- what we're seeing in India, when Muslims are expunged, you know, so, so I'm trying to get a handle on that. And then bringing it to bear with like the 1619 project, trying to explain that Nicole Hannah-Jones is an American nationalist <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and trying to draw distinctions of, about these debates. And I'm just very much involved. We did a big teaching at Yale about this. In, and I'm on the faculty Senate and trying to get getting resolutions passed, defending Florida universities. I'm just very much in the weeds of the education wars. And I'm going to continue to frame them in terms of my fascism frame and continue to draw analogies of the sort that Daniel will press back uh, on me for. Um, But it's just the way the structure in which I think um, it's the political framework and conceptual framework in which I'm thinking. And I hope that my work will have value because there will be detailed information about like what people are learning from Hungary. <laughs> so for you, that for you, this is not and just to connected with what Dan, Danny's prediction. This isn't going away. Um, this is. Uh, I, I'm continuing to theorize in this framework, and people will find my framework useful or not. Uh, but um, you know, I think people can read how fascism works and not like the word fascism, but still find it very useful. It was written for that. It wasn't written to be like, ooh, fascism was written like, here's an interlocking structure. I'm going to use a cool word for it because it seems like the word that fits the most. But you're going to see this structure again and again in the future. (laughs) And I just want to say, I also see that structure out there. Right. You know, like, I I think that's like what makes us on the left, basically. We see that structure. We see that structure. and then people. And that structure is important to elucidate. Honestly, whatever the goddamn hell we call it. Agreed. Agreed. And I, I think that's very connected to what the black radical thinkers were doing. Exactly. I think that their primary purpose was not about fascism; was to elucidate that structure and make Americans feel and appreciate the awfulness of that profoundly American structure. But as the child, you know, I do do a lot of research on Nazi Germany, Weimar Germany, not just teaching and research, but also. It's my personal history. And so I do feel a personal connection and a kind of like, you know, I grew up with this thinking in these terms that is central to who I am, really. So it doesn't matter to me if anyone continues talking about it. (laughs) Right on, right on. Excellent. Well, thank you both. And uh, I'm sure the conversation will continue. Exactly. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Danny. Thank you.